0: Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Kathy Cornack on anxiety in dogs and the role of integrative medicine in treatment plans. Kathy graduated from the University of Queensland in 1985 with an honours degree in veterinary science so has been part of the veterinary profession for over 30 years. Since then, she's had a diverse career within the veterinary profession, including clinical practice, research and training, remote area government veterinary officer, and with the RSPCA. Kathy is a certified veterinary acupuncturist and gained her membership in veterinary behaviour in 1999. Cathy is a member of the Integrative Vets Australia Group and the AVBIG Behaviour Interest Group. She serves clients interested in an approach focused on natural, complementary and integrative medicine with a particular interest in behavioural medicine. Kathy is based in Newcastle in New South Wales. Hello Kathy, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. Thank you so much for giving up time in what would probably be a very busy day, I imagine. How are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm well. Thank you,
0: Sarah. And I'm so excited to talk to you today about um, an interest of yours, which is in um, behaviour, in particular, um, anxiety. Um, But before we jump into the topic that we um, are so excited to discuss, I was just wondering if you're able to share with our listeners um, your background Mm -hmm. and how you actually um, came to be a vet and into the field of integrative medicine. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh gosh, Um, (laughs) it's not a straightforward question. I suppose, and I might dovetail really nicely into the behavior stuff, but I guess as a child, I grew up in quite um, like a traumatic um, situation and so I always kind of gravitated towards animals. When Mm -hmm. chaos was happening, you would find me down under the house, you know, with the with the dogs and yeah. and that kind of thing. So it was really a no-brainer that I was going to be a vet and I mm. had the mind for science and all that kind mm. of thing. And then integrative medicine just, again, was one of those things that yeah, I just kind of fell into it um, kind of by no conscious path. Um, I just kind of got interested in it. I guess started one AVA conference when there were a list of talks and I didn't find any of them particularly interesting. And there was was a cattle talk. um, A cattle guy came out with the acupuncture group and I went, hey, that sounds really Mm. interesting. I don't know anything about that. And I went to the lectures and I went, ah, ah, that sounds really, really interesting. But you know, it's probably a lot of bullshit and it probably doesn't work. (laughs) And they did a field trip out to out to a little farm, and there were some real, you know, real live cows. And um, yeah, they ran the cows up the race, and he didn't do any traditional Western diagnosis. It was all, um, you know, with a with a TCM diagnosis, so wow. palpating points and that kind of stuff. And he got everyone right, you know, like it was like non-cycling or mastitis or
0: cancer.
1: Wow. And I was like wow, I need to know what is going on with this. And so that prompted me to do the the Veterinary Acupuncture Certification, which was the first thing I got.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: um, around about the same time as my behavior membership, Ashley. And and then that just kind of lifted the lid on Pandora's box for me. It kind of opened my mind. And I realized that, our vet training, our Western vet training, while valuable, is only one particular lens and mm. we kind of drawing from all systems of thought to really come up with, um, I guess, like an integrative system that trying to do as much as we can, looking at things from different perspectives, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And are you working only in small animals now or do you actually see large animals too in your practice?
1: Uh, no, I don't. Uh, see any farm animals anymore. I okay. used to be in a mixed practice, but it's all small yeah. animals these
0: days. Yeah, yeah, which is fairly common with with uh, I find with integrative vets. Um, I don't know. I mean, you probably know more than me. Is there many that are working um, in large
1: animals anymore? Um, I wouldn't know, but less the majority mm. of us yes are in are in small animals, and I presume that's the same as the figures across the broader AVA. And the vet industry, yeah. you know, most of the work's in smallies.
0: Yeah, and, and becoming more and
1: more um, as exactly. as we as years the mixed go on. a kind
0: of an endangered species, I I, I know
1: it's. it's quite sad. So we are kind of no different to yeah. the greater profession in that respect.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it is quite sad seeing the, the change. I, I grew up on a um a diet of James Herriot, which is what inspired me to be a vet, and it's so different now. I'm sure that there's still pockets of that that exist. Um,
1: over the world, but certainly yes, changed I a lot. Yes, I too uh, g- grew up on a diet of the James Herriot books, <laughs> and I, they were all paperbacks, and they were absolutely worn out by the time I actually yeah. made, made vet school. And um, but yes, sadly, like the rest of our lives, those those days of a simpler time are are behind us. Mm.
0: Yeah, but I mean, also um, with those changes, we um, have become so much more advanced in in what we can offer animals. And um, in particular, with your interest in behaviour, I know that that's just come in leaps and bounds um, over the last couple of decades um, compared to what it used to be. Um, So that sort of leads us to a nice segue into the topic of the day. Um, Cathy, you mentioned that your interest in behaviour started um, in your childhood, but um, in terms of interest in working in behaviour in your practice. Did that sort of um, evolve once you graduated from university and were working or was that always there with you um, when you were studying too? Uh,
1: no, I wasn't really conscious of it as a thing as an undergraduate and it just sort of happened. Mm. A lot of my life works like that. <laughs> and life happens so like, like
0: that, doesn't it?
1: It does. Uh, so it wasn't like I went in there with this idea that, that was going to be my focus. I thought I would be like a mixed practice vet because I had country background, and mm. and so here I am, small animals in a large, in a small city, large
0: town. Mm. In Newcastle, yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, Kathy, why do you feel behavioural medicine is so important?
1: Uh, well, this is a no-brainer, really. Um, it's you know, behavioural issues are the number one cause of. Of death in in animals throughout mm. the throughout the developed world, particularly um, like young healthy animals under two years old, it, it eclipses everything else. So they're either you know um, euthanized straight out, or they go through the through the relinquishment chain. And then there's also the facet of, you know, just the whole quality of the bond. Unless people really understand behavior and can know what's normal, what's not, when to get help, unless they, you know, like appreciate animals in their full capacity, mm. then, you know, then the whole of society suffers as well as the animals and individuals and individual families. Mm. You know, I've got a staffie that lives next door to me and... I tried to tell them these dogs get separation anxiety and I have to, you know, you hear the dog crying every time they go out and that kind of thing. So everybody's impacted by
0: it. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding, I think you mentioned, um, with, with people, you know, considering that perhaps the pet is just being naughty or vindictive, and and a lot of the a lot of the time it's purely based on fear and anxiety.
1: That that's really huge, um, Sarah, and that's and we all know this as vets and in the profession, I'm sure. But I think we've still got such a such a long way to go. Like the profession, you know, has has a a good understanding, but the the level of education out there in the community is just a appallingly mm-hmm. low. And so this in my opinion is where our is where our focus needs to be in just getting that um, you know getting people to understand about behavior. Yeah, like the the nice lady next door, I mean she thinks it's all a sort a discipline issue and mm-hmm. it's really hard to get people to realise that mental health issues are, are a real thing and um, an anxiety, you know, for instance, as that's the focus of our of our talk knowing that that's not you know in the words of of Kirsty Sexel you know that's not a training issue that that's a behavior issue
0: yeah that's right and then they're two two very different um, things if you have a a dog which is or or a cat um, but most of the time we're talking about dogs in these um, sort of cases of separation anxiety but um if you you know if you if you have a dog that that doesn't have any fear of or anxiety and is calm and um, receptive to good training it the, the training can be so much more successful and and if you but if you have the opposite where the dog is very fearful or anxious then the, the training is so much more difficult so it's it, it all comes back to understanding the behavior and starting there.
1: Absolutely it does so that's I think as a profession, we need to kind of wake up and and smell the roses and really, really make this an initiative. Um, We'll make the most impact on animal welfare if we do.
0: Mm. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think that... um it most of the time does, you know. The, the recommendations do come from vets, so educating the vets um, is such a key in educating the rest of the general public as well, um, because a lot of the time people will really lean on their vets' advice.
1: Yeah, yes, but I don't think with behaviour actually, Sarah. I think as a profession, we've really got to raise the bar. I think they they come to us for health things mm-hmm. um, and possibly nutrition. But not with behavior. You know, it's the person next door or the guy down the park or, or you know, dog trainers. They're still, we've got to do a better job of letting them know that, you know, about it's not a training issue. This could be a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. So go and ask your vet and, you know, get, get their professional advice and their excellent advice about, you know, is this something they can work with the trainer with or is it something else?
0: Mm, mm, you're right, yeah, no that, that's a, that's a really um interesting point and and I think that um the the sort of the scope of different sort of levels and experience and quality of trainers out there um do you do you have anything to comment on on whether there's there should be sort of more standardisation um with tra- trainers that um, aren't qualified vets and whether yeah. there's yeah, there's some issues there with sort of sort of negative advice and things like that?
1: Yes, of course. There's still a little bit of that old school, you know, negative and punishment-based um, mm. things, and um, I don't really want to go too much down this down this wormhole. But mm. again, I think education will solve it. Well, if people understand that it's not just you know, kind of tough discipline. You're really after someone who's going to work in a in a productive way, say with your vet or you know, um, and then use positive methods because they work much, much better.
0: Um. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I find that, look, I I have a horse and I'm very interested in in equine behaviour and I find that with her, the more positive reinforcement I can give her, the calmer she becomes and the more likely she is to learn what I'm trying to teach her. It's just black and white, absolutely
1: Yeah, that's it, Sarah. That's exactly it. You know, and we don't even know this with humans yet. You know, it's like, let's have a compliments box, compliments box, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You know, get some positive feedback. So, you know, we're so terrible with human behavior still. You know, um, how on earth are we going to make inroads into animal behavior? I'm just... Mm. we've got such a long way to go but but we're getting there
0: I have heard, um, correct me if I'm wrong but I have heard an expression where training a child is the equivalent of training a sorry, sorry, training a dog is the equivalent of teaching a two-year-old child something new, do you see correlations there between children and and animals?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's definitely a correlation and again I don't want to get hung up on the the two-year-old thing but I think one of the points of the analogy is that we've got to get people to realize that animals are not just simply you know simple mechanistic kind of creatures that whole you know several centuries ago Descardian machine thing you know where they're just doing simple reflex stuff.
0: Mm. These
1: guys are intelligent um, you know they're outcome driven for their own for their own ends mm. um so we've really got to start to appreciate that. Yes, if, even if we can start with the two-year-old child thing, so that people realise, oh gosh, you know, there's a lot of capacity in there.
0: Yeah, I yeah, absolutely.
1: That's, that's what we've got to get people to realise. That
0: yeah, that no, are. I agree. So, Kathy, do you um, do you see sort of more and more behavioural cases in practice? Do you, do you feel that they're increasing? And and if so, sort of why might this might why this might be?
1: Yes, I. Certainly, not necessarily in. Well, I'm seeing a lot more in referral practice, but just you know, as I go around as a GP, you know, anxious dogs used to be quite the exception, but now, sadly, and I think most practitioners would agree with me about this. You know, almost it's more common than the exception now. Mm. If you get one who's kind of what we might call within the normal limits, you're like, oh sure, you know that's so refreshing because yeah. nearly the vast majority of them are developing um, behavioural issues and anxiety in particular. And I reckon uh, there might be at least, at least about six factors involved in this and I'm not really sure why they're increasing but I've got some theories mm-hmm. and I think it's multifactorial. So one factor is I don't think we're necessarily, I mean I know we're not, we're not genetically selecting dogs um, who have been coped. With modern domestication
0: mm-hmm.
1: and all the pressures entailed in that, and the artificial lifestyle, so we need to. Like I always say, if I ran the world, they would all be running through like a temperament assessment, and I would be um, breeding from you know, the, the dogs with with low anxiety, mm-hmm. but you know, behavioural selection is not really is not really a thing across industries. You know, it's all on on look and type and those mm. types of things. So that will be a part of it. Um, the second thing that's contributing, I think, is that people are busy. You know, we're all busy. And so animals are not getting, you know, kind of adequate exercise. Back when I was a young person in, growing up in the 60s, you know, dogs roamed the streets and um, I'm not saying that that's where we want to go to, but, but they were fitter
0: mm. and um
1: and now they're all kind of inside or behind fences um, and not getting adequate exercise or, you know, even appropriate mental
0: stimulation. stimulation
1: and, yeah. and, and we're all busy. So just finding the time to do that, yeah, I'm sure, is going to negatively impact on uh, their mental health. The other really big factor that I see, and it's, brings in that child point as well you know people raise their dogs as they raise their children usually and that's way too much love you know okay. it's all like love, love 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 and not enough discipline and not enough kind of boundaries and I'm mm. guilty as charged I've, I've raised uh Two-leggeds as well as four-leggeds, and and you really don't do them any favors. Um, you know, we really need to have that balanced triad mm. where you know it's not overwhelmingly love, but it's kind of love and equal amounts with with discipline and boundaries and and positive, you know, meaningful enrichment. Mm. I'm always talking to clients about you know what what does the dog have to do all day with these anxious dogs? You know, what's their job oh their job is to be my friend mm. you know, love like, well, you know they're not kind of like a trophy wife or you know like a, you know like a love cushion you know what have they got to do that that brings positive that brings positive meaning to them Purpose, and I think yeah. I think this is huge because you know more and more we're seeing people estranged from their families and um you know whether that's just geographically or because of you know, some other thing. And so a lot of it comes down to the spotlight of love and focus on the dog and, um, you know, and they get off on the dog's neediness and that kind of thing. Mm. So we've got to really look into that, trying to get those, you know, the balance in a relationship right because too much love doesn't breed good good mental health for any of us. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It's an interesting point.
1: Yeah, I see that I see that a lot, um, and I talk about that when I can with people who look like they might be receptive mm-hmm. to that. have to be careful with that one. <laughs> um, so often I think around at the edges on that. Um, other one is, you know, there's a lot of fear. We live in this age of the internet and whatnot, and um, there's a lot of, and the, you know, look at the election campaign. You know, everything runs on fear, scary, scary, ooh, ooh. And this is coming over into the behavioral um, sphere as well. Um, so people are frightened to do things. For instance, as a natural leaning vet, I'm all about chewing bones because, mm-hmm. you know, that dental exercise, that chewing, it gives them something to do, something positive that's rewarding and it's also a great stress reliever for the dogs and the mm-hmm. cats to chew on. To chew on things.
0: Well, it's part of their natural
1: repertoire yeah, of behaviours. That's right, part of their natural behavioural repertoire. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're in this totally artificial... We're, we're raising them and we're living in this totally artificial world now in houses, you know, behind fences and walls, not having anything, you know, really compelling to chew or do. So, um, you know, even... Trying to get rid of some of the some of the fear factor and try to get a balanced view. And mm. it's a bit like with everything, you know, shit is going to happen. You know, sure, there's a chance something might get stuck. Sure, there's a chance you might break off teeth and that kind of stuff. But it's all about finding a balanced view, mm. in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, for all of us in our lives. We can't live in this little cotton wool kind of shoebox. Mm. Um, just being afraid that something might happen.
0: Yeah, you can't protect yourself against absolutely everything. That's exactly right. And
1: I think that's a big part now of of all of us and people with their animals in particular, you know, there's this idea about must protect from every single bad thing. Mm-hmm. But at what cost?
0: You know, and it's yeah. not
1: necessarily when you add up the balance sheet, it's not necessarily positive. Yeah. So another one of my thoughts about why they might be increasing is um, that if you look at, Things through a natural health lens, which I do as a as a flag carrying integrative vet, um, but through the natural health lens, you know, and I don't know if it's out in the mainstream, it might be, but certainly in some of these other ways of thinking, that I think we're probably seeing like genetic changes or mm. epigenetic changes, mm-hmm. and I think that our dogs and our cats are like the canary in the coal mine with that. Mm, that's interesting. And as we get a heavily contaminated environment, you know, with more pollutants and chemicals yeah. and even on diets, you know, long-term diets of processed food, my personal theory is that we're, that we're actually changing them. You know, we're getting sick and anxious puppies and, you know, right out of the gate now that you never used to see. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something going on at
0: the genetic level. You definitely could be onto something there. And it sort of just sparked my my thought of whether there's any way you could correlate the increase in canine anxiety to perhaps the increase in sort of um, behavioural issues in children, um, both linked to preservatives and chemicals in food and different environmental pollutants and toxins. and I know there's a huge rise in in autism in children, and there's potential links there. I wonder if it's sort of along the same school of thought with pets.
1: Yeah, I think I think we probably find that it that it there, and that's why I kind of I like that you know a dog is like a two-year old analogy, not so much taking that literally but just as, you know, kind of like a lens for comparison. Mm. And I think whatever's going on in people, we know the same things are going on in our animals. Mm. Um, and then I think the final thing that's possibly contributing to it, which we've already kind of touched on, is, you know, the lack of education about yeah. about mental health and even understanding what's normal behaviour. Mm. You know, this idea about, you know, that all animals can be aggressive it's, you know, you still get that languaging, oh, he's not an aggressive dog. It's kind of like, well, everybody and everything can be aggressive. Yeah. Um, we all get anxious from time to time. But is this, you know, kind of out of clinical limits mm. or, um, or is it something pathological? So just that, yeah, that's just that lack of so I think it's increasing as we've said, because unless you're aware of it, you can be unwittingly, you know, kind of making it worse or yeah. not making it better.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there are some really valid points and it certainly um has has broadened my perspective on on, on why behavioural cases might be increasing. So thank you for that, Kathy. That was really, really thorough. And you I know you've discussed um the sort of poor education of quite a lot of vets and the general public. Um, do you feel that the general public um, are poorly educated about behaviour in sort of in the um, context of pets having mental health issues and whether they sort of don't actually see mental health issues as a, a real thing in pets? Um, I know that it's certainly getting a lot of, of the limelight in people, but... Um, certainly sort of considering an animal having a mental health issue I know would be um, quite a strange concept for a lot of people are you able to comment on that
1: yes I think people don't people don't they are, I don't think I've met a single client who you know when you tell them I think the dog's got a clinical anxiety issue um, you know they might have sort of thought that perhaps they do but you know they don't really understand they're kind of relieved in a way to know that, wow, so this same stuff happens in dogs um, as for us. And, you know, there's still that thing about people do not come forward for help with behavioural things because they they think that they caused it. So they think they get, um, you know, like someone out to have a look at the behaviour and they think that they're going to be judged Mm -hmm. and that they're going to be judged negatively and that it's something they've done, they've caused Mm -hmm. it. Mm. So they don't understand that that there is a whole spectrum of mental health issues in animals, the same as, as in humans, and, and that they didn't cause it, you know, it's... Uh you know, we we think it's something you know organic at the level of the brain with neurotransmitters and, mm. and that kind of thing. Mm. They, they still have a very simplistic view. You know, you'll go out and see the dog is obviously clinically anxious, it's nervous of everything, and they will say, oh, yeah, he's really timid, and he must be timid because a man must have hit him once. He's better with mm. ladies, mm. and and you kind of go and I say, well, you know, that could have happened. But it could just be that this guy, you know, he's not resilient. He's mm. got that clinical anxiety and so everything's going to make a bigger, you know, kind of traumatic imprint. They're mm-hmm. not, not resilient. And I think a lot of people um, get off on this idea of rescuing. You know, they all want to be the hero and, and come in and rescue the abused dog, And that sort of has become the narrative Mm. um, rather than a broader narrative about what's really going on. And I'm not saying abuse doesn't happen. It does. But we need to incorporate the larger narrative into the rescue story because Mm -hmm. we know most of the dogs that show up at at rescue organizations um, have mental health issues. Mm. which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but I'm sure an underlying genetic kind of mental health issue has been significant in them being there in the first place.
0: Well, I mean, you see such a sort of a a pattern in certain breeds. um, I think of, you know... Um, Italian greyhounds and dachshunds. And when I was in practice, there's certainly, I mean, it might have been just where I was working, but there was certainly, um, you know, cohorts of breeds of dogs that you just sort of expected almost to have anxiety when they walked in the door. Um, So there there has to be some sort of genetic component there.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the figures from the refuges will will bear all this out, Mm. you know, like staffies are. Yeah. Are overrepresented and for separation anxiety. So they escape
0: mm. um,
1: and storm phobia. So they escape. They are absolutely hands down overrepresented in yeah. terms of, you know, the strays. And so, yes, there are um, definitely that, that, mm. um, that whole aspect about educating about mental health. And I think it's going to be a liberation for people and they can get off the You know, blaming themselves Mm. and issue, and realise that that these dogs do need, again, not just a trainer to give them more discipline because they're being naughty or vengeful, but they actually have a mental health condition Mm. and should be treated as such. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's let everybody off the hook and start helping.
0: Yeah, and give them a role to play in the animal's recovery from the issue. Or, or you know, even if they don't completely recover, because I know that um, mental health issues often stick around. But at least management, so that they can have you know increased um, joy and and um, and delight from their daily life and, and increased welfare because of that. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Mm. Um, and Cathy, I know that you you work in um, in integrative medicine in behaviour, so you're the perfect person to ask this question. But are you able to sort of um, enlighten us about the role of alternative medicine um, for pets with anxiety, and 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 what what you might do um, with a case that comes in the door to see you? Yes, Sarah, I
1: would be. I think it's really important to comment about this um, because um, clients are out there. A lot of clients I see, in fact, um, the majority have actually, you know, tried um, a variety of of natural medicines um, for their their animals that they think might be anxious. Mm-hmm. And um, and the thing with it is that these, are much, oh, well, you know, complementary medicines and that kind of thing, they can really be a nice. Adjunctive aid, or it might be sufficient um, in mild cases of anxiety. Um, but the number one thing is that we've got to get people to come forward to have a clinical assessment, so that we can work out is it, you know what's going on. Is it anxiety, or is it something else? Is it a training problem, or a or a behavioural issue, and how significant? Is it? So we've got to, the same with any other field of medicine, we've got to get the diagnosis first. So to get them to start coming into us rather than going to the dog trainer and that kind of thing. Mm. That's the first thing. And then once we've got our diagnosis, if it's only mild, um, then very oftentimes, you know, some of the products floating around out there that people are using are going to be helpful. And, and some of the classics are, are things like. You know, the the tryptophan chews, which, and tryptophan's an ingredient of serotonin, so it can act like a mild SSRI, um, vitamin B, Mm -hmm. essential oils. Um, The other classic that they're using is rescue remedy, which is a bark flower remedy. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're not always, particularly with rescue remedy, you know, people don't understand. The point of rescue remedy is to be just given for that really acute crisis And you just give it repeatedly every, say, five minutes during Mm. an acute crisis. Right. Um, But clients don't understand. And I had a lady just the other day. She was saying, oh, yeah, so when I think storm's coming, I'm going to start the day before and just try to build Mm. up and give it like every six hours. And and I'm kind of like, well, that's completely useless. Mm. That's a useless way to use rescue remedy." Yeah. You know, you've got to get in early, the same as with your other meds, get in early before the storm comes and, you know, give it every five minutes. So I think for the profession, you know, to, to understand that whether or not you're open to complimentaries, and that's entirely everyone can make their own decision about that. But, but to know that people, clients are out there using it and if you, you know, haven't developed an interest in it, and that's fine. Just to have a network of people that you can refer to, you know, someone like myself, mm-hmm. for instance, and you can say, well, you know, I'm not sure um, how effective these are going to be. They might have made a diagnosis and said, okay, you know, it's a severe anxiety. I don't think, you know, these are really going to cut it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it might work in a mild case. Um, so I think we can. Um, that's kind of the where we're at with the alternative medicines. Mm. So that can work. Mm-hmm. Um, should always be done with behavior mod. So mm-hmm. that's the thing. People think, you know, I'm just going to give some rescue remedy or a tryptophan chew or, yeah. you know, a body wrap or whatever it is. And woohoo! Yeah. And of course.
0: <laughs> so Quick fix. Not,
1: we know just the same as with our pharmaceutical meds. You know, they have to do the behavior mod.
0: Yeah. And we
1: actually have to do some work on, you know, the relationship between the human and the animal Mm. and the physical environment. So we have to look at all those same factors. And so this would be the main thing that I want to say is, you know, I am a supporter of of complementary and alternative medicine, but it's, you know, horses for courses. You know, there's, there's time for surgery and there's time for pharmaceuticals. And so we've got to get that diagnosis and know, what's appropriate and people are using these things and they're not using them correctly. And so, you mm. know, that's a big issue.
0: Yeah, no, and, absolutely. And it just comes back to that that um, education piece, doesn't it? Whether you're trying to educate, you know, at a grassroots level, um, going straight to the consumers or, or educating the vets and probably largely both and, and anyone and everyone in between um, could benefit.
1: Yes, that's right. I think at every level we've got to. And, and the other thing that, that we've sort of touched on already, but that applies here when we're talking about alternative medicines for anxiety is there's a lot of stigma still about mental health mm. and a lot of Stigma around using, you know, the pharmaceutical meds mm. for behavioral yes. cases. And just about every client I encounter, and whether they're naturally leaning or not, they're very resistant about this idea of starting them on pharmaceutical meds. Mm. And this has been known in the profession for a long time. Yeah. You know, like if, if you've got diabetes, then, you know, it's okay to need insulin. But if you've got a mental health condition, oh, goodness me. Stigma, stigma. Mm. You know I, I that found
0: mean, that every all the time in practice. Yeah. The idea of putting an animal on Prozac was just shock horror to some people.
1: Exactly. So we've still got a long way to go. And the more that we make inroads, you know, in human medicine and, and talking about mental health and talking about meds, the more that this is going to flow through to our animals and um, so the so, with the so this is why they gravitate to the alternative medicines, I think, because it's like,
0: ooh. Mm, to stepping stone. You, you know, see. the other's
1: too stigmatizing, yeah. too scary. Um, and there is, so there is the stigma and there's a lack of understanding. The other thing I find is, you know, when you do kind of have that relationship with them and you do say, well, you know, I think it's time to try some Prozac or whatever it happens to be, they the number one question I'm sure everyone else working in behaviour will get this as well is, oh, but I don't, I don't want it to change his personality. Yeah, you yeah. would get that too, hey, yeah. when You are in practice. People saying, yeah. oh my god, it's going to be a sedative. they're yeah. going to be Dopey the whole out. Time. Yeah. yeah, and you have to say the one. Um, it's probably the probably what's more likely to happen is you're going to come back and tell me it didn't do anything mm. because I'm going to start really, really low and titrate up. And um so they really have a lack of understanding and a lack of education about how about how the pharmaceutical meds work and that, you know, they're not you're gonna turn turn them into a sedated mm. zombie. Mm. <laughs> and, and you sounds like you relate to that as well, Sarah, <laughs> from your time in practice. So
0: Yeah. Well then, I yeah, I used to work in an area of Sydney um where <laughs> every second dog came in was anxious. Um it was in the eastern yeah. suburbs. Yeah and we did have quite a lot of patients that did end up on pharmaceuticals um, yes. but there there certainly was um from from a lot of clients a lot of fear around you know whether they were sort of being con- considered to you know being unethical almost to drugging their animal to try and calm yes. it down because they couldn't cope with the behavior and yeah there's was, there was a lot of issues there
1: that's right. It's a, there's a lot of stuff to unpack in mm. behavioural medicine. That's what makes it a really interesting field. Mm. I'm actually totally addicted, but, <laughs> it's totally, but it's totally frustrating. But it's very rewarding if you yeah. can, you know, if you can walk through all these layers and blocks to get to get people to get the light bulb moment. Mm then it's very
0: rewarding. Yeah, that, that's certainly what I saw in practice um, and that's definitely one of the challenges with behavioural medicine for sure. But what are some of the other main challenges that you find um, you face when you, you have a behavioural case?
1: Um well, I think we've, we've largely touched on them, but probably the main challenge is because there's that stigma around behavior and people are guilty, they think that you're going to tell them that they caused it. Mm. They stay underground a lot of time until it's really, really severe and they're kind of, you know, at their wits' end. And that behavioral change is really difficult for animals mm. or for ourselves. And so of the main change Challenges is getting people to realize that change is not going to happen overnight. Like, even if they go to pharmaceutical meds, um, if something's been two or four or eight years in the making, it's going to take some time, you know, to wind that back. Mm. And so, that's one of the main challenges is getting people to come forward early so that we've got the best chance of helping them before they're totally. You know, I'm just going to have to relinquish them, or
0: yeah. You know, they've, they've
1: got gone, severe gone mental health, yeah. issues. So I'd say that's it. and sort of just so that would be the one thing, getting them to come forward early, mm-hmm. and then just building that 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 trust and rapport, and knowing that it's not going to happen overnight. That's the hardest thing. You know, you put a dog on antibiotics for a skin rash or something, or Apoquil or something. You know, and they can see they can see a change fairly quickly. Mm. But you put them on, you know, psychotropic meds and it, it might take weeks and mm. then you've still got all the behavior mod to, to yeah. work your way through. So the big challenge is to realize that the behavior doesn't develop in a vacuum, nor does it disappear, you mm. know, kind of overnight. Mm. And you've got to bust all those barriers. And, and then if we're using complementaries just to let them know, you know, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, you know, I tried the... The this or that, but it didn't work, and then, like I said, I'll talk to them. Well, how did you use it and what did you do? And it's like, well, it's not that it's not working, it's just that you're trying to put out a fire with a thimble. Yeah, and um, you know, and often if people you know want to layer up with the natural products, which which I'm all for, like if we can get them there. That way we can, but they have to realise you're probably going to have to use six or eight of them as well as all your behaviour mod Mm. because you'll often get like a faster result with your, you know, pharmacy psychotrophics.
0: And do you find that you can often wean them off a pharmaceutical and – if they are still struggling with a milder form of anxiety, um, you've, you've implemented the behavioural modification, the environmental changes and worked on the relationship between the pet and the owner. Do you find that you can often wean them off the pharmaceutical and maintain them on some sort of um, herbal or um, natural supplement
1: thereafter? Yeah, you you can sometimes and it really depends on the client and mm. the case. Um but that definitely happens sometimes. Other times, you know, once people have tried the, the psychotrophics, they go, oh, wow, you know, it really makes a big difference and everybody's a lot happier. So then very often a lot of them just decide, you know what, this is working, I'm going to stay with it. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yes, we, and the other thing to know, of course, you know, is you can you kind of combine them up. And a lot of times I'll just work with, you know, things like valerian or other herbs. Um as long as people realise it's not if you're using the complementaries, even in a moderate case, um, you know, you're gonna to have to layer. They're gonna to have to do lots and lots of things and they're gonna to have to be very committed to their behaviour lot
0: Hmm. And to that and actually
1: – sorry, you go, Kathy. I was going to say, I think everyone working in behaviour would say the same. It's like mm, very difficult to get clients committed to behaviour mod. It's a lot of work, Mm. low rewards, and that's always the rate limiting factor.
0: Yeah, and that actually brings me to my next question, which is how do you achieve good client adherence um,
1: in these cases? It must be so challenging. Yeah, it's challenging for all of us in the behaviour space and... Um, I'm always interested to hear what other practitioners have found. Um, I don't know that I have any magic <laughs> skills or, <laughs> or tips. or, But I would say it comes down to education, doesn't it? I mean, really listening to your client and getting into their space and saying, you know, it must be just so hard living with, you know, um, fuzzy and, um, yep, and just to know that, that you didn't cause it, you know, this is just how they are, mm. how they've been born, impacted on by experiences that they've had. So really, I guess, become a support and an ally for them and not, you know, try to help them get rid of that that guilt and that mm. and that causation. And a bit like in our behavior mod plans, you know, you want to set them up for success. So make it easy for them to do the right thing. Yeah. And so that is, you know, which regular... With regular support, I usually try to at that first visit say, you know, well, it's going to take, they usually think, you know, they'll just have one big consultation and then it'll all be over. And I'm like, you know, we have to commit to getting together every month, mm. you know, for say a year or two years and working with a good um, behavioral trainer as well. Mm-hmm. And so that tends to weed most of them out. So you've got to get those clients who are committed to go the long term. The long haul, Yep. Yeah, and you have the resources, time and or financial. Yeah. So it, it does make it difficult. And I think other practitioners working in that this space would know. I think we get very few out of all the people that come to see us, you get very few that actually follow it through and, have a good result at least I do if others are getting better results I'd love to know how you do it Um, (laughs) and you do get a few who go through and it's like the most satisfying thing and they said I did what you told me and And you know I've given it 12 months and oh we can't thank you enough it's so much better that's lovely and I think some of it too is knowing that sometimes some of these animals so I guess, yeah, kind of my final tip I could say about that is that let people know, you know, we've also got this attitude in this privileged affluent time that we're all living in, you know, is that we can fix everything
0: mm.
1: and sometimes actually we can't fix everything. You know, there's some that are severe and are really not cut out to live in this artificial world mm. we've created for them mm-hmm. and to know that to fail, failed so-called is okay Mm. Yeah. I have, and they just stand out to me in my memory, a very, very brave young couple who adopted a rescue dog and he had all manner of issues and they were so committed. We did 18 months and they threw everything at it. But then in the end, he was still a risk to their small children mm. and they didn't want to do what everyone else does just because nobody can bear the thought of, you know, the animal dying. mm that these animals just pass through rescue organisations. So these young couple, and they are such the exception, and I was so proud they actually made the hard decision to go ahead with the euthanasia, and mm. we did a home euthanasia, and the animal wasn't stressed. and mm. And so the other part of this is you've got to realize that we can't fix them all, and sometimes you know the best outcome, is a stress-free euthanasia that yeah. that animal go. And then getting back to my first point, go and get another one who's better suited for what you want. And then yeah. hopefully we can start getting a pool of animals kind of circulating through who, who are going to be like a positive benefit yeah, to yeah. everybody and not be adding to everybody's cumulative stress.
0: Yeah. That sounds like a wonderful world. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> we can dare to dream. That's kind of my vision for behaviour, I yeah. guess. That's where I'd like to see us heading.
0: Yeah, and look, it will take time, but with people like you on board and being the advocate for these changes, and hopefully we'll start to see more movement. We can hope, Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, Kathy, we're sort of coming to the end of our time together today. Um, I just was wondering before we go whether you're able to share with our listeners where they can find you and your practice. Uh, sure. So I'm based in
1: Newcastle, New South Wales, and um, so you'll find me online mm-hmm. at um, holisticbets.com.au. Great. Great. Well,
0: look, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been very insightful and a really nice different um, angle um on on how to manage anxiety and some of the sort of bigger, broader issues that we need to tackle as an industry. Um, i've I've really enjoyed our chat and I hope that you'll come back again soon. but but just before we go, Kathy, you've dropped a lot of pearls of wisdom already, <laughs> but are you able to leave our listeners with one final pearl of wisdom to close the interview? Gosh, yeah you know, <laughs> that's
1: tough. But I would say, what really upsets me is this kind of division between the industry, you know, kind of between so-called conventional vets and integrative vets. Mm-hmm. And I just like, know everybody to just know we're all on the same side you know we're all in this profession heaven knows not for the remuneration (laughs) we you know we're in it because we want to make a positive difference to the lives of people and animals so whatever we can do let's just work together Um, you know even let's just sort of work together and tackle the issues and if you're not sure about something go and find a know refer them on to a colleague who can maybe help them a little bit more Mm. than you can rather than standing in it in our in our fear and you know, kind and of not, not, not advancing the cause, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, no we're, all, we're all friends and we're all part of the one wonderful profession. That's it. And everyone has
0: um, has animals and people um, at the forefront at the end of the day. Or well, they should do if they became a the yes. kind of Um Well, that's a really nice note to end on, Kathy. And thank you again. I'm sure that you've got a busy day ahead. Um, and we'll, we'll catch up with you again soon. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much for asking me. This is the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes.